everyone go to Titus. I told you I'm pretty excited about preaching Titus. It's a, a book that's often kind of overlooked, at least in my life, because I see 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and those are like church planter books for me. You know, he's sitting there talking about the, the structure of the church and, and what it should be and what it's not, and, and Paul's charging Timothy in those books, and we get lots of great quotes and quips from it. And then there's Titus. You know, there's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then there's just Titus. And Titus is this three-chapter book, but there's a lot of wisdom in it, and it's incredibly practical. And so as a church and a church plant, um, you know, God just kept bringing Titus back back to my heart. And because we like to say that we're a Titus II church, um, and in that Titus II church is where the generations are pouring into one another and uplifting one another, and, and everyone's doing this together. And I do want us to be a Titus II church, but then as I'm praying and preparing God's like but what about the Titus 1 church and the Titus 3 church and I'm like conviction okay I get it so we're going to move through Titus and uh I am I'm excited to see what what God reveals about himself for his people for his church for his glory through the book of Titus and um what we're going to start with today is biblical eldership because that's kind of a new term for a lot of people for some they've heard the term elders Um, But a lot of churches around here don't use the term elders a lot. So this is week one where we're going to talk about the qualifications of elders. Next week, um, there's a section as you're going through Titus where he starts talking about false teachers. So we're going to talk about not just the qualifications of elders, which is this week, but next week, what does true eldership look like against false eldership or false leaders, false teachers. And so it's kind of a two-week cycle. But I don't know about you, but there is a challenge for me as I read the Bible where it seems like God has this high and holy standard for his people, and I want that, and then I'm sitting here and I'm walking real life, and I'm like, oh, man, it gets heavy and it gets hard. And then I'm reading Titus, and I'm like, praise the Lord, because the great love of God is that you and I should be challenged to that high and holy life, but he's not just sitting up on a throne saying, come to me, you'll figure this out, but he's put leaders into churches who are meant to drive us towards him he's put examples alongside us he's put a cloud of witnesses around us he didn't just save us and then put us on our own he saved us and he put us into a crowd of believers so that we could all keep learning from one another all keep pushing and that's what i see in titus that titus is a book where we are striving alongside one another under biblical leadership alongside biblical believing or bible believing Um, people and we're pushing on forward to do the good works that he has called us to do and so that's Titus I would say though because I live in Arkansas and I talk to a lot of people and we have to wrestle with in Arkansas especially in the Bible Belt quote everyone's a Christian right everyone's a Christian here because they go to church and that's just a mindset that's in this culture but I want to kind of back up from that and and kind of get more into this question of well I go to a church isn't that enough right that's kind of underlying that they believe they're a Christian because they're sitting in church or participating in church you know the heart of Christianity is not where you attend but it's who you believe and so we are Christians if we say I believe in God I believe that he has sent his only son to die for my sins who died for my sins was resurrected and is seated on high again and he is coming again that's what it means to be a Christian it's not what church you sit in, it's who you ultimately sit under. Right? We ultimately sit under God, but He has told us that this is the way that the church should look. 
And so it's not enough to sit in a church. We need to make sure that if it's not cross life, wherever it is you go, that it is a biblically functioning church, that it looks like the church that God said, I want my church to look this way. Um, Trent has been reading through 1 Corinthians, and now he's on to 2 Corinthians. And, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join him in that journey, and, and I'm excited about that. But you read Corinthians, you read Thessalonians, you read Titus, you read 1 Timothy, and we get glimpses of what God wants his church to look like and what he doesn't want his church to look like. So Titus is something we get to step into. I would say, as you think about the church, though, you individually, I individually, I have a personal responsibility in my spiritual life. So do you. There is a personal responsibility in your spiritual life that you must attend to. And so think of this, Philippians 4.8. You personally, Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So you individually have to bear responsibility for your own personal growth. It is not on the eldership and it is not on the leader or the pastor alone to make sure that you grow or that I grow. But there's a personal responsibility and I find that Philippians 4.8 helps me a whole lot because it's real easy for me to to, well, last night's a good example. I walked into the kitchen. It's the end of the night. I want a snack. I don't pick up the banana, the apples, the cuties. I get out the Oreos and I put them on the counter and I have a moment where I'm looking at them. I'm like, well, no, there's homemade uh, peanut butter cookies right there. I'm going to honor my wife because she made these cookies. And so I get that and I get a huge glass of milk. And so it's easy to make unhealthy choices in our diets we need to realize that we can do the exact same thing with our spiritual lives. So Philippians 4.8 reminds me that I need to think on those things which are healthy for my spiritual growth. I am accountable for those things. So there's a personal responsibility, but there's also this cross life. We have to accept that there's a corporate responsibility in other believers' lives for us as well. Titus shows us that. There's a corporate responsibility between us. So I'm, it's not just... Ricky's going to take care of Ricky, and he's responsible for himself. But no, true covenanting together, true membership in a church, means that I'm accountable to you and for you. That we walk this out together, right? So my life is open to you. Your life is open to me. We welcome one another in. But this is where we see the great love of God. That he didn't save you. And Titus tells us that he didn't save us because of our own works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. But look at his grace and mercy even more. He didn't just save you, but he said, now, here's a group, here's a fellowship of believers that can help you keep walking this life out. And so I say this quite a bit, but lone wolf Christianity is not biblical Christianity. We were never meant to be saved and figure this thing out on our own. That's not biblical. We don't see it anywhere. Well, we see are that even men like Paul are surrounded by fellow workers. And you know what? They're, they're recorded in his letters, but they're not really recorded in the history books. Paul seems to get all the notoriety, but it's because he was surrounded by men who would uplift him and hold him up and hold him accountable and help, who would help him do the work. So we're accountable to each other for one another. We're accountable for ourselves. But look at the great love God has given us that we are to live holy lives together. He has given us His church for this very purpose, y'all, that we get to proclaim His excellencies to one another. There's actually people we can talk to where we can talk about the goodness of God and they care. 
we get to hold one another accountable for His glory. So I can talk to Bo, and Bo can talk to me, and Bo can say, Ricky, you're going to have to talk to me about this right now because I see this in your life, and, and that doesn't glorify Him. Now, if you're sitting there like, okay, okay, this is getting a little personal, like I don't think I want that accountability in my life, you'll find that the more you're with people who genuinely love you and you love them and you realize that there's no judgment, but there's just fellowship and it's real, then you're willing to let those barriers down and it's, it's good, Right? You and I, we get to spur one another on to hold on to the great hope because there are many days, you can see it on my face, whenever I'm just weary and worn out. And I need brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside me just like they come alongside you to say, but he's still on the throne. And it's immovable. We get to do that with one another. And Titus shows us that. It tells us that. You know, we got to pray with fellow believers and that's okay. It's rejoicing to know that I can sit back there in a room with other men, and even though I don't know what to pray, I can hear their prayers. And as they pray, I'm just like, yes, Lord. Like, that's exactly what I need in this moment. To look in here and to see the women praying. That's what we get to do with one another. You and I get together, and we get to sing to our great King. Right? The lesson, whenever we open the Bible, we have this mindset of, Okay, what's the Bible going to show me right now? What's God going to reveal to us as believers? And that's good and right, but whenever we sing, you'll realize that that's just completely other-directed than us. Like, we're singing to the great King who's on the throne. And Mark always does a great job of finding those songs that aren't about us but are about Him. And they keep turning us back to Him so that all creatures of our God and King, oh, praise Him over and over. And that becomes an echo of our hearts. And we get to do that. And then we get to rejoice in our magnificent Savior. Like These are things that show God's great love that He didn't, don't hear me wrong, He didn't just die on a cross. But He died on the cross, He put all the rulers to shame, and He is leading a triumphal procession all the way home to His throne. And He's bringing believers alongside one another, and He's saying, you can do this, we're going to do this. And He's pulling us home. So that's Titus for me. Like As I read Titus, I'm like, oh... I want to be a part of that church that I see in Titus 2. And Titus 2 is what a lot of people focus on, but Titus 2 is preceded by Titus 1. So let's read Titus 1, verses 1 through 9. Because God shows us what He wants His church to look like. In Titus 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So that was basically Paul saying, hey, I'm writing the letter. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And here's what he tells Titus. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So that's our verse for today, the qualifications of elders. Um, let's pray, and then let's really push into this. 
Lord God, your word open before us. May we, may we honestly, truly assess and exhibit such gratitude and thankfulness that you have not just set your church into motion and left it alone, but you have called men who are qualified to lead it. But you didn't just say, lead the church. But here's the criteria by which elders should be established. Lord, I pray for the men of our church that this awakens something in them. Lord, that it awakens something in their wives. Lord, as they're listening, Lord, that we, we, we aspire for eldership. We look for appropriate, healthy elders. But Lord, we also understand that, that by your grace, you have given us this opportunity. Lord, we love you. Amen. So we like to move verse by verse. Let's just answer quick questions very quick. Who is Titus? We need to know. Now you're probably saying you totally skipped verse 1. And Paul and Ricky, he's got a lot of stuff in there. You're supposed to be breaking this out. I mean, you didn't talk about before before the ages began. You didn't talk about for the sake of the faith of the elect and their knowledge. You didn't do that. And, and God who never lies. You didn't do any of that. You're right. Andy's going to be doing that in three weeks. So Andy is preaching. Uh, on the 22nd, and he's doing gospel encouragement, uh, which is going to really come um, in chapter 3. But the gospel encouragement is what Paul's reminding us there in verse 1, that Paul is an apostle, an apostle, he's a servant because of God and his gospel. And so you'll see that kind of layered in there. We're going to jump to Titus. Who is this guy? I mean, who is Titus? He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Scholars are kind of split on this. And I would ultimately say it doesn't matter, okay? But there's two common thoughts. One is that Paul led Titus to faith, and therefore he really is a child of Paul. He's a, a spiritual child of him, so Paul is kind of like a father figure to him in the faith. Absolutely no problem with that. Another thought is that maybe Paul didn't lead Titus, but Titus, Titus is just a fellow believer, and this is a mentor-protege situation. And I'm okay with that. It doesn't change any of the content. But Titus is mentioned in other books of the Bible. He's mentioned in Galatians 2.3. And that's just one of those really good passages. That's where we found out that Titus was actually a Greek believer. You seem unmoved by that. Okay, he's a Greek believer. Here's why that's really good. In Galatians, remember, that's a book where it's the law and the gospel, the law and grace upheld side by side. <coughs> And so for Titus to be a Greek believer and not a Jewish believer really shows that God blew up everything with his death on the cross. And he brought in the Gentiles, but he didn't just bring in the Gentiles. He's using the Gentiles. He's using Greek believers to spread his word. So Titus is a Greek believer. He's likely much younger than Paul. Um, we don't know that for sure. It's just some common thoughts. But you're also going to see him mentioned in 2 Corinthians um, quite a bit. Titus is someone that Paul not only loved and and mentored, but he also sent Titus out. And so Titus is giving a report back and forth from the churches, and God is using him. And then we also see him mentioned at the end of 2 Timothy. Everyone seems to know that um, Demas, in love with the world, has departed. The next verse uh, mentions Titus. And Titus has gone to, uh, I believe it said Dalmatia. I might have the wrong place there. But it's not the idea of deserting Paul. It's more that, well, now Titus has also gone to serve somewhere else. Whereas Demas was in the negative, Titus is in the positive. So Titus is someone, he's, he's got a small book, but he's being used, um, this, this convert, this Greek believer, he's being used by God. 
And it doesn't matter whether Paul won him over to Christ or did not win him over to Christ, whether he's the one who preached the gospel. What matters is that Titus is the recipient of this letter, that God has preserved, and we get to see what God has uh, for him. Paul says to Titus, I left you there for one purpose. I'm sorry, for two things. Got a twofold statement here. What is Titus to do? Look at verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. So Paul was there with him, and then Paul evidently said, Titus, you stay there. And then Paul is likely in prison here. So I left you in Crete so that you, number one, might put what remained into order, and number two, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So that's Titus's job. Take care of the church, put everything in order, appoint elders. So then, question number two, what is an elder? Like It says in the ESV header, qualifications for elders, but as you read this, it actually doesn't say elder, it says what? Probably overseer. Okay? You know what word you will not find in your Bible? Pastor. Okay? We, in the American culture, we use the term pastor quite a bit. That's what we are comfortable with. That's what we're familiar with. I'm okay with that. I tell people I'm the lead pastor or I'm the pastor of Cross Life Fort Smith. No problem with that. But we can't, because we preferred this term, we can't cast into exclusion these other terms that are biblical as well. All right? So... What is an elder? It's an overseer. The elders are the overseers or the leaders of God's church. In, in Arkansas, we would call them the pastors. And then so we have the lead pastor. We have the executive pastor, the associate pastor. I mean, we have pastors for everything. I do have opinions on that. I won't preach those opinions, but I would say that right now in our context, elders, they are overseers. And what we want to look at today is what are they over like what are the qualifications for these overseers but you take that word overseer it's really great they're seeing over they're watching over the flock that god has given them in their church i'm an elder to this church in other words i'm an overseer to this church another word you'll hear quite a bit associated with this um the elders are to shepherd the flock so they're they're the shepherd of the flock they're watching out over you and for you and so that's what they are the original word because everybody cares about this is episkopos okay and that's spelled for you note takers e-p-i-s so e-p-i s-k-i-p-o-s episkopos so whenever you leave here today and someone says oh what you talk about at church we talked about the qualifications of the episkopos and you just drop it right there and leave it and then if they want to know more You just kind of tell them to come visit. The word episkopos is translated a few different ways. Elder, overseer, and bishop. So bishop is actually a biblical term. But they are to oversee. They're to shepherd God's people. And so we're going to look at that. um, Like I said, we use the word um, pastor. I'm okay with that. It's just let's be okay with the terms elders as well. Often whenever you see the word elder in the Bible, you should also note it's used in a plurality. There's always an S with it. All right, There might be an elder that could be referred to, but Paul's always writing and bringing together the elders. And he even says, establish uh, elders, plural, in every town. So we believe in a plurality of elders. And we're going to talk about that at the end. But this is just giving you some idea of this term in case it's, it's new for you. It's a biblical term. It's all throughout. Um, it was part of their structure. I would also put this as a footnote, but the Bible speaks very directly about two offices in the church. 
the elder and the deacon. Those two offices are biblical offices. Does this mean that you can only have elders and deacons in your church or on your staff? No. But you better absolutely make sure that if you're going to be a healthy church, that you have the offices that God told you to have, and those are elders and deacons. We're going to talk elders right now. After Titus, we're actually going to loop back, and we're going to talk about deacons and what are the biblical qualifications for deacons. Um, I believe that it's good to understand, hey, this isn't how Ricky went to church. This isn't how Mark wants a church to look. These are things that God's Word has said. Make sure that these things are in place. And make sure you do it the right way. Okay, so therefore, as we get ready to push into these men, as I read about the qualifications, I do pray that you are challenged by it. I pray that there's an awakening. Um, it does not mean, hear me on the front end, that every man in the church, every male in the church is supposed to be an elder. That is not true. It's just, it would be great... But I don't think that it's true that every male will be, the, will be the elder. We all serve in different capacities. But I do believe that in every church, God will raise up elders who will lead the church. Okay? But I do pray, men, that you are challenged and awakened, not by what I say, but by God's Word. I simply want to explain what it means and what it says. And then I do think that there should be an evaluation where you, as the congregation, are evaluating my biblical qualifications as well, to be quite honest. Because if I'm sitting and saying I'm the elder, you cannot just say, well, he's the elder, he's the pastor, he can do no wrong. Oh, as we read this, this is, this is my job description. If God moves my family on somewhere in 3, 10, 13, 23 years, and you're praying about who the new pastor is going to be, they need to meet these criteria. If you go to another church across town, this is a criteria for what God wants of his pastors, his elders, his overseers. So move away from American job descriptions and job performance reviews and different skill levels. You're going to find that this list is not a list of skills. It's a list of character. God's man for God's purpose, for God's church, should be known for his character, not his skill. All right, so men, I'm praying that you're challenged, that you're awakened. And even if you say, yeah, I'm not going to be an elder someday, then you at least know the qualifications by which an elder should be chosen. Church, as I'm about to read the qualifications, I pray that you take this to heart and understand and expect this of all of your elders as well. And so, and I've, I've already kind of touched on that. So what are then, we know who Titus is, we know what elders are, they're the leaders of the church. What are the qualifications of an elder? I want to read them again, then we're going to have a nice nifty little list where we just kind of categorize it all real good and we can organize it. But he jumps into it in verse 6 kind of abruptly. He says, If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And then there's a period because it was preceded by a dash. That's what I mean. He just kind of jumped into it. Then he says, For an overseer, an elder, a pastor, a leader of the church, as God's steward, this is his job, he's stewarding all that God gave him, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So let's, there's a lot there. Let's just, you know, do great educational work here. Let's make a list. And then I just want to explain what each one of those are. But this is God's list. And then we are going to flip to 1 Timothy at the end because there's a couple of things on that list. Um, one of them being the most foundational. We'll end with it today as a challenge for our prayer. But let's clear the muddy waters. 
And here it is in a list. An elder, a biblically qualified leader, in other words, must be, number one, above reproach. Must be the husband of one wife. Must have children who are believers or not wild. Okay? So we'll go back to that here in just a little bit. God's stewards. He must not be quick-tempered. Cannot be a drunkard. Cannot be violent. Cannot be greedy for gain. Must be hospitable. Must be a lover of good. Must be self-controlled. Must be upright. And must be holy. Must be disciplined. And must hold firm to the Word of God as taught so that He can teach and correct. I mean, what a calling. If I saw that listed, like if I'm looking for a job and like that's the job description, I'm not going to lie. I'm sitting there and going, I'm disqualified. Like, who would, who would want that? Like, that's, that's you got to live an upright, holy life. And your life is a, you're like in a fishbowl. Like we have, so I'm preparing for the sermon and we have an aquarium sitting on the desk where I study and I write. And we've just recently bought a snail. And I'm not going to lie. Like I'm writing the sermon and I'm watching the snail. And my first thought is that snail moves quicker than I thought a snail could. And it's pretty cool how he's moving around. So then the snail is moving across the rocks. And, and as he gets to the bubbles, it's kind of like he just sort of releases. And then the snail floats to the top and it's like a bobber going along and then falls over here and it goes down. And then it repeats the cycle. And I was just amazed. Like, I lost some sermon prep time, not going to lie. But I was amazed by this snail. And the reason I'm telling you that is because you know what a pastor, elder, overseer really is? They're in an aquarium. They're in a fishbowl. Their life is open to observation constantly, and it's meant to be that way. The pastor who says, you're not welcome into my life, I don't see that biblically. And even though it doesn't say that here, I see it in all these qualifications. The only way that you can know if a pastor is biblically qualified is for his life to be open to you so that you can see these things. Does that make sense? Y'all hear me? So the pastor who's sheltered, and closed off and not open, I don't think that's a biblical view. I look at Paul and I look at how the early church worked. These men were with the people, their lives open to them. So I look at it first and I'm like, oh man, who would want that? And I'm like, oh, that's, that's my job. Okay, so let's start, let's start going into this. But before we do, here's what you didn't see on the list. I had to write these down because I see this. I, uh, and You do not see listed in the qualifications to lead a church a seminary degree. You do not have to have a seminary degree to lead God's church as God wants His church to be led. Now, do I think seminary is valuable and important and a great place to be equipped? Absolutely. I've got about 21 hours towards my seminary degree. I think it's good equipping. Is it necessary? Absolutely not. What's necessary for God's people to be, or I'm sorry, for God's man to lead God's church is that he meets these biblical qualifications as a believer and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's no seminary degree listed. There's no speaking eloquence. You do not have to be a great speaker. Moses tried to get out of it, right? And God said, oh no, no, you're going. But there's nothing in here about must be a good speaker. Take heart in that. You know, it's not also in here, growth statistics. How many people... Did he, did he pastor before? How fast did the church grow? Did the church decline? Why did the church decline? Is always, why did the church grow or decline is always a much better question than did it grow or decline, by the way. It's a much healthier question. Why? Those aren't listed here. Dynamic stage presence. Okay? 
Why'd you laugh? Okay. But it's not a qualification. All right? These are comforting things to me. Notice this one. He does not say a qualification to lead a church is to have deep wisdom and insight. No secret knowledge necessary. This is comforting to me, men, because there's a whole lot that I'm not, and they're tied up a whole lot in those right there. But we have made the, the job or the position of pastor such a professional um, position that we sometimes lose our biblical qualifications, which are much more important. So, let's break these down. Let's not prefer skill over character, and let's not disqualify biblically qualified men. Whatever God has qualified, we cannot disqualify. But I want to make sure that we understand what we're looking for. So here we go. I just want to break. There's 15 of them. Do not worry. They do not all have many sermons with them. But, but let's look at these. What does it mean for God's person to be above reproach? Quite simply, he must be blameless. That's pretty incredible. Am I blameless? No. Praise the Lord that he is gracious towards us. does not mean that he lives a sinless life, but he, he aspires to live a sinless life. He aspires to be blameless. He does not want to indulge or cause others to indulge. I like how H.B. Charles puts this, and I'm going to quote him again here in a second. He said, right now we're in this, this phase of the church where we like for our pastors to be real. But y'all, it's not enough for the pastor to be real. He, the elder, he must be godly. There must be something markedly different in the pastors that they're not just real people, but you can see a passionate pursuit for God in them. That there must be that love of God in that person. It's not enough for them to be real. They must be godly. That's what it means to be a blameless and above reproach. H.B. Charles, man, he puts it this way. For every pastor you hear about dying in the pulpit because of obesity... There are scores more stories of pastors who lose their pulpits because of the destructive forces of sex, money, and power. And that's a sad reality. That if we're not careful, the personality of a pastor can mask the idleness of his heart. Right? It's all about character, but this above reproach, and you're probably sitting there and you're like, well, Ricky, how are we supposed to, above, uh, uh, how are we supposed to judge whether your heart is above reproach or not? This is one where he is completely and fully before God. In private and in public, I am completely on display before God. Now, the scary thing is, so are you, okay? But the pastor absolutely must take that charge seriously because people are watching him. God has appointed the leaders of the church to teach the people of the church to be the church for his glory. And so the pastor must be blameless. He must be above reproach. The way he thinks and acts and speaks the way that he interacts and gives of himself to others the way that he serves what he watches what he reads what he listens to what he spends his free time doing it's not a presentation of holiness it's really the tenor of his life he really wants to be above reproach what does it mean to be the husband of one wife we're gonna keep this one short okay here's the simplest non-controversial definition or explaining of it. The most literal meaning and rendering of that word is a one-woman man. And it's all hyphenated. That this elder, this pastor, he's a one-woman man. His heart, his affection, his desire is for his wife. It does not mean, by the way, that he is married. He does not have to be married. It just means that he is genuinely um, passionate 
He's going to protect the sanctity of his marriage. He's not an adulterer. He does not look at pornography. He does not desire to be with or to, to indulge in those things. It does not mean that an elder has to be married. I know I've already said that, but it means that all of that desire really comes back to there's one passionate pursuit um, in, in his life that God's given him, and that is for his wife. The reason I say I'm keeping this one short is because, so what about divorce? Yep. You want to read lots of articles on that, and you want to sit, and you want to be divided by scholars right now? I don't think that that's the heart of this right now. I think that's a great conversation for us to have. But whenever you get into divorce, you also get into, well, are there biblical grounds for divorce? I believe that there are. But see, it's like one topic that leads to another. I think what's most absolutely important is to understand this, that his heart, his eyes, his desires are for his wife. That is the standard that God has called us to. You also get into, well, was this a cultural thing with polygamy? And and so there's a lot. The most honest rendition is a one-woman man. And that one woman is the spouse that God has given him. Number three, children are believers, comma, or not wild. All right? All right. So if you have young kids, do not disqualify yourself, okay? All kids have a wild nature at this point or that point. Um, Chas still compares me to a kid most times, um, and I'm running through the house with a Nerf gun and jumping over things, and I'm breaking the rules. So wild can be determined in many different ways, and age as well, and children. So Chas sometimes says, I feel like I have four children in the house. So all joking aside, it says that the children are believers or not, or they don't have a bad reputation. So what does this mean? I think it's best to look at it this way, that there's a lot of grace here because children are young and with that that young age, there is what drives, as we get more mature, we see the immaturity as wildness. And and yes, there is. We gotta, we gotta stop our kids from doing this. We need to correct them, we need to discipline them. But don't think that just because you have to get onto your kid that that means that they're wild. It means what's their reputation, right? Isn't that what it says? Um, where did it go? His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, I'm going to come back to this here in just a second. But look at First Timothy. This might be helpful, might be more comforting. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I think you look more at that. Children are unique, and they're going to be more wild some days than other other days are going to be more. Some people are just blessed with like the kid who just sits on the bench and they're happy and they say, yes, ma'am, no, sir. And you don't even have to tell them like they just have that personality. All right. That's that's not the case. OK, we've got three kids that are getting progressively older. That's just not how life works. I don't think that that's Titus's thing. I think that First Timothy helps us. Does he manage his household? Is he in control of his kids? Whenever he speaks to his kids, listen. Not does he have to discipline them progressively or not, but does he manage his household? That's what matters. As they get older, there is that thing we need to watch for is, are they believers? Are they becoming believers? And the reason that thing that matters is because is he professing and modeling and teaching at home what he is professing and teaching and doing at the church? If so, by God's grace, they will become believers. However, at the same time, that proverb Raise up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is older he will not depart. It's not true. It's an aphorism, it's a proverb, because it's mostly true, but it's not an absolute truth. So, there will be that. 
But then at that point, we move from where are they under his household or are they on their own? Because there's that personal responsibility. So that one's kind of a, a thing for us parents to wrestle with. But I think that men, we really want to wrestle with that. I would say this. I think that you can tell the most, if we're, if we're talking, well, is he a one-woman man? Is he manages household well? I think that you can tell a lo- whole lot about a man based on how he treats his wife and his kids and how they respond to him in those moments. Make sense? You can watch. Does he treat her with kindness? Is he gracious? Is he loving? Is he kind? Does he serve her? How does she respond to him? Whenever he speaks to his kids, it might sound harsh to us, but how do, how do they respond to him? Or whenever he speaks kindly and, and softly to them, how do they respond? So as we watch men and women who are leaders of the church, how are they treating that family which God has given them and how are they responding to them? Okay, it does get a whole lot quicker. But those are, those are three really big things that top his list in Titus. Okay? All right. What does it also mean? It means that he's God's steward. It means that he manages his own household, his wealth, his health, as well as the church's finances, the flock. You don't have to worry about what the guy's motive is. You can look at his house and you're like, oh man, they, he's managing his household well. Does not mean, by the way, that there's not debt. Does not mean that there are any underlying health conditions. There are certain things that lie, that we visit upon ourselves. There are other things that life visits upon us. But whenever we see our error and we pray for forgiveness, God's love does cover us, and there is grace in that forgiveness. There are still consequences of that sin that we have to live out. But I think this really also goes back to what is His desire? Does He manage His household, His wealth, His health? Therefore, can he be trusted with all that God has given him? He's not quick-tempered. This guy, he is calm, especially under pressure, and especially when attacked, because persecution will come. How does he present himself? Cannot be quick-tempered. It doesn't say we prefer not to. It says not quick-tempered. It's just flat-out blank. Not a drunkard. By the way, this is not a prohibition against alcohol. It's not... Um, it's a, it really, it's a prohibition against the excess of it. Now, if you ask me, because you're probably wondering, those of you who walked alongside me longer, where do I stand on this? I'll tell you with that said, I prefer not to drink. There are personal reasons for that that are not necessarily doctrinal reason, reasons, um, though some of it is, but I have a personal reason. I have had alcoholism in my family. So I have seen the harm and the danger and the scare of it that's just too close to home. And being a teacher and, and a youth pastor before, walking alongside students and people in life, I've seen the damaging effects of it. So my preference is to just stay away. I have, I, I hope, a healthy fear of it, but I have a personal preference. If I said doctrinally, why do I stay away from it? Um, and it's really a loose doctrinal thing, but I just want to be conscientious of, I live in Arkansas, which is the Bible Belt, and, and it's, a, it's almost like a theological doctrine for many people that you don't touch alcohol. So just being mindful of that, I prefer not to. Um, this doesn't say that you don't or you can't drink alcohol. It says, though, that you cannot be a drunkard. Okay? So there's that balance in there. But in case you wonder where I fall, I have preferences. Um, a lot of it comes from personal life. I, as the pastor of a church, I'm just, I want to be mindful as I'm talking to people in the community and stuff like that. Do I look down on those who, who drink wine and stuff like that? No. Do I look down on those who are drunk? Absolutely I do. Because it's a, something you're not supposed to do. So I hope you hear my heart in that. Not violent. First Timothy says it this way. Now, don't be quarrelsome. Okay? I don't think violent just means punching a hole in this wall. 
this person is not looking for a fight. They're not trying to stir the pot, right? They're not quarrelsome. They're not trying to cause strife or arguments. Uh, sorry, arguments. They're going to contend for the faith. They're going to fight for the faith. They're going to defend Christ and the cross and the church. They're not going to back down from necessary contention. But you know what they're not doing? They're not up there just trying to stir the pot just to see how everything lands. They don't want to fight. You know why? Because blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called children of God. They see the fight, and the greatest peace you and I can strive for is that men have peace between them and their God. We profess Christ. But there's a whole lot of doctrinal stuff that splits churches and divides believers that really it shouldn't be. There should be a whole lot more grace because I believe that we're all going to be standing, not all universal, but many churches all. There are going to be many churches that we're going to gather before the throne and we're not going to care that we fought over this or this or this. We're actually going to see how absurd and foolish it actually was. He is not ready to fight. He is not greedy for gain. I summed it up this way. He just doesn't live for himself. Like, that's what it really comes down to. He's not a pastor of a church so that he gets this paycheck. By the way, elders of Cross Life, you better not be greedy for gain, okay? So, because it ain't happening here. But if you've got a pastor and, and it's got to be this dollar amount to make this happen, then I'm not saying that's wrong. He's got to take care of his family and himself. He's got to be provided for. That's the church's responsibility. Um, we can look at that next week. But at the same time, his desire is not to live for himself. He's not greedy for the gain of finances, but I would also add in there greedy for the gain of time, prosperity, reputation. I've heard some say um, in my dual world that I just want this job, not necessarily pastoring, I just want this job because it's a stepping stone. The pastor's job is not to have a stepping stone at a church so that he can pastor a bigger church. His job is to not be greedy for gain of anything. He does not live for himself. He's hospitable. He's ready to welcome, spend time with others, and serve them, watch this, even strangers. The heart of the word hospitality is in how we serve strangers and others. He is a lover of good. His desire is to delight not only in God, but what God calls good. We cannot love a sin that God hates, right? But at the same time, we should most definitely love those things which God loves. Self-controlled. His life is a life of self-control not a life of self-indulgence. He's not driven by his emotions. Those can drive me sometimes. His circumstances do not direct who he is or his desires or his sins or his satisfaction. Those are all part of life, but his desire is to live a life that is absolutely self-controlled. He's in charge of his life. His life is not in charge of him. He's upright. I've said this already. In public and in private, he conducts himself in such a way that the purity of his heart is evidenced by the congregation and by God who sits on the throne. That's, that's really your ace in the hole for all of your pastors, is that all pastors will be held accountable for how they shepherded the flock. I will be accountable for you and how I led. Right. So there's that uprightness. Holiness, in public and in private, he strives to live a holy life that's before the eyes of God constantly. You need to know this. It does not mean that your elders are perfect. It does not mean that they are sinless or infallible. But it does mean that their heart, their desire is for holiness. That where you know they have fallen, you see a greater desire to overcome and to be holy. That through the days and through the years, you see them striving more and more, and you see that personal growth. And it's such an infectious growth that you want to walk alongside them because you see it's a genuine desire. 
That's what that really means. He's willing to live differently and to lead his family differently because we are not made for this world. We're made for the other world. We're made for the next world. And so he desires to live a holy life and lead others to a holy life. We're almost done. Stick with me. He is disciplined. He's not only self-controlled in managing sins and desires, but he's disciplined in his pursuit of God. There's a difference. Sometimes we get caught up in our life. We're trying to manage our sin. Well, how do I not do this more? How do I stay away from this? The elder is not worried about managing sin alone, but he is driven. He's disciplined. He's putting those things in his life that drive him closer and closer to God. He's keeping his quiet time. He's fasting. He's praying. He's meeting with other believers. So so that disciplined life, in other words, he's shaped by his experiences with God, whatever God calls him to do. He's shaped by that, not by the sins and indulgences of the world. And last one. This is the one that usually scares people, but it is defining. Hold firm the word as taught so that he can teach and correct. You know what this does not mean? It does not mean that as an elder you have to preach in front of others. It means that you hold to the word so that you can teach others, so that you can correct others. Preaching is a primary part of what elders and pastors do. I mean, it's this. It's, this is my chief mode of discipleship with you. It's, it's trying to give you the word teach you the word so you can acquire the word and live the word but i was talking to a fellow pastor and he was talking about how the room would be full and there'd be all these different elders but only like four of them would preach but this one over here had such a grasp and a a, an affinity with families in crisis that he would counsel and families would call on him for counseling and this one led men's ministry and this one was the primary preaching teacher and this one was one who would fill in but he would also oversee and work with the children's and so there's, there's all these different equippings. It doesn't say you have to preach the Word. It says you need to be ready to teach the Word. So do I look around this room and, then, and we're missing some and I say, do I see men who can hold on to the Word, that's what, hold that Word, so that you can teach and correct others? Absolutely I do. It doesn't mean you have to have a platform where you preach. It just means that you can communicate, even if you stutter through it. You can walk alongside people. I think some of the quietest people can absolutely be strong elders because they know the Word and they can teach the Word in those moments that they need to. So it might look like you counsel families, you preach in the pulpit, you lead men's Bible study, um, you're checking on others, and you have biblical counsel for whenever you're praying for them. By the way, this is the only skill that's in that whole list. Everything else is about the character of the elder, not the skill level of the elder. All right, First Timothy. How am I doing on time? I don't want to. I don't want to waste your time. We're doing fine. My wife's looking at me. Go to First Timothy very quickly. You're not in children's. That's right. Uh, if we're doing qualifications, I don't want to miss this. First Timothy chapter three. Read it very quickly. And then we will, there's three things that I see listed here that, that we didn't see in the other list. And so that's why I think it's good. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, right, or elder, he desires a noble task. That's new. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 
He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So a few more things to note very quickly. These are new from Timothy, from Titus. Verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders. We might say, well, that's, that's new. It wasn't listed. However, at the same time, I think that all of Titus still points to this. Because a, an elder will live his life in such a way that as people are watching, they think well of him. He has a good reputation. In other words, if I say, yeah, I'm the elder of a church, or I'm pastor of a church, people shouldn't go, oh, really? Okay. Um, it should just kind of be one of those, oh, that makes sense. That's, that's how the pastor should live his life. It should not be a surprise to others that he is an elder at a church or a pastor. Now, keep in mind, we live in the South, so you're not going to see the, really, they're going to be like, well, that's fantastic, and then they're going to turn around right behind your back and say, can you believe, right? That's how we work in the South. Nice to the face, careful behind. I'm a Southerner, so I can say that, but I would say how he conducts himself matters to outsiders. Y'all be careful. This whole idea that runs rampant in our culture of I don't care how other people see me, that's not really biblical either. Our reputation matters. We're God's representatives on this earth. How we live matters. What others think of us does matter. Side note done. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert. We've got to keep that in mind. Elder cannot be a recent convert. It tells us why. Um, pride is deceitful. And so you take a recent convert, you put them into a leadership uh, position over a church, you can be very, very careful. This is my concern and my problem with the organic church movement or the house church movements. As you read the books and stuff like that, just about anybody can lead a church. So, so Brad and I pray and, and Brad, you know, we talk and Brad's like, I'm, I'm a Christian now. And I'm like, fantastic, Brad, you need to open your house. You need to lead a church. Number one, Brad's going to be like, uh-uh, nope. Okay, because that's how I would be too if I was a new believer. But there are some new believers who would say, Okay, yeah, I can do that. And because you know what you're like whenever you're a recent convert. You can take on hell with a water pistol. Like you can push back all the forces of darkness. You are ready to fight for the faith. And so they're going to be ready to embrace it. And this says, don't you do it. Because that pride will creep in and they will become a target of the enemy and they will fall. So we, we don't want to do this to new converts out of love. We want to train them uh, and test them. And verse 1, this is, this is incredible. And then I'll conclude. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Why in the world do I say that that's incredible? Because I believe that we've lost sight of that in our churches. Like, it should be something that, that men want to be. He says if anyone aspires for that, it's a noble desire. It's a noble task like we should have that desire to serve in God's church. And I would say that the same thing would be true of deacons. Even though that language is not there, I think that language is there. I grew up, and as I was growing up in church, and I wasn't like always in church, but as I would grow up, I would hear about deacons, and I had that thought, man, it would be so cool one day to be a deacon. And then I hate it, but I grew up in the church more, and I kind of lost that taste. For one reason or another, justified or unjustifiable, but I lost that desire to be a leader in the church, to be a deacon. And uh, Timothy's reminding us, he says, oh no, this is trustworthy. Anyone who aspires to be an elder, an overseer, a lead pastor, a pastor of a church, 
It's a noble task because it's a calling unlike any other. This is something that God calls you to. It's something that He equips you to. I would say the reason it's incredible is because if you have this desire, it's because God is doing something in you. Like He's creating this desire, but you're reading this list and the qualification, and Timothy lays it out. He's like, hey, you have a great desire. By the way, here's your road, and here's what your character's got to be like, and it's the right path. So... Man, if you aspire to be an elder, you desire, you want a noble thing. Question is, are you qualified? Could you be qualified? And if not, then what must change? Because a lot of this is, these are things that are in our control by the power of God. We can pray through these things. All right. All of this, qualifications of an elder. Make sure that you are overseen and shepherded and and you're under the eldership of biblically qualified men this puts me in an aquarium it puts my whole family in a fishbowl so that everybody can be watching us and it it is hard you know to to just know that man that's that's the high calling is to always be on display i don't know if my family's ever thought about that but the pastor is and i the pastor should be the pastor should not have a secret life or desire a secret life i've told chas before though i said and and i hope you hear my heart in this I, I just, because I, I do different jobs, it's like, man, it would be nice to not be needed, right? Just for one moment, just nice not to be needed. That doesn't mean I don't want to be seen. doesn't mean I don't want to be served. It just means in that moment, I'm like, man, the weight of everything was crashing in on me. And I'm, I'm doing this like as a moment of confession, just to kind of say like, there is, there's that, that godly and perfect and good burden for the church that the elder carries. He knows the weight that's on him, and he welcomes it. And that's why it's a noble task. So I'm looking across the room, and I'm picturing people who aren't here right now. And do I see men who are biblically qualified or who would be great elders one day? Absolutely I do. The question is, do you aspire for that? And if so, are you ready for for that calling? So what does it mean for Crosslife? Very quickly, it means that they're... Uh, at Cross Life, we have grace for this. Is our conclusion? This is our application. We have grace for other churches that do not use the term elder or overseer, and so choose like a different. And they might even choose a different structure. That's okay. I think what matters is do they have biblically qualified men leading them? That's what matters. No matter what they call them, are they under biblical leadership? Number two, what does it mean? We believe that the pastor and all the elders must be biblically qualified and that these qualities are visibly seen and experienced over time amongst the congregation. So you should know many of these things about me by now is what I'm saying. You've watched me. You've walked alongside me. You've watched my family. You've walked alongside them. Number three, don't worry, I have five. At Cross Life, we believe that lay elders are biblical. What I mean by lay elders, it means that they are not, per, we don't believe that you have to be a professional to be a pastor or an elder. Lay elders are amongst the congregation. I think that that's biblical. I think that that's what I see. I don't think that Titus rolled into town and said, who's got the seminary degree? Okay, you're a professional, you're a professional, you're a professional. He went in, he saw biblically qualified men who were in the church and in that fellowship, and he said, okay, you're the elder, you're the elder, you're the elder. All right, so Titus got to a point. So we believe in lay eldership. Number four, we also believe this is important in a plurality of elders here at Cross Life. Right now, I am the sole elder because we're a church plant. We're just getting started. Titus appointed more men. Uh, We'll walk through what that looks like later. But it means that we believe that there should be a council of biblically qualified men. And in that council, I'm not the leader. 
I'm referred to as like a lead among equals. In other words, I'm the lead pastor among equal elders. So if we go sit over here and I'm sitting with three or four other men, my voice is not stronger than that voice in that council. I can say, guys, I believe we should do this. And the other three to four men say, we don't feel that the church should go in that direction. We believe that this is what's supposed to happen. Then I absolutely see to them because there is counsel in the many and there's foolishness in the one. So for the wisdom of God, the unity of the church, the glory of Christ, we want a group of men who come together um, and they determine the direction of the culture of the church. You know why we don't have many business meetings or any business meetings? Because we don't need them. We have biblically qualified men who we have not recognized as quote unquote elders um, who are overseeing different parts. And I call them and I say, hey, what do you think on this and that? They run the business in, in the direction of the church, and they do it very graciously. Um, and then number five, at Cross Life, we believe that the biblical model and expectations of God's church should be shaped by God's word and expectations and not our own preferences, practices, or cultures. And so that's all of the qualifications of elders. We definitely went over our allotted time. But uh, Megan's fine. She's fine back there. Don't worry. Um, y'all, we're going to reflect on this, and, uh, and let's see. Let's see what God continues to do with cross life. But uh, I'm thankful that he tells us exactly what he wants of his church. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your time with us or our time with you, with your, your word open before us. And Lord, there is a lot of information. I pray that you let it stick. Or call us to, to remember this. And Lord, give grace where I spoke long. Or give me, give me favor there because it's for the sake of making sure that we have biblically healthy churches that, uh, that I strive to do what I do. And so, Lord, I pray that you be with us as we go throughout this week. May we be mindful that an unbelieving world is watching us to one, and they wonder at what Christ is like. Help us to live accordingly. And, Lord, I pray that you raise up biblically qualified men who aspire to be elders. So there's that desire in them and that you equip them. And, Lord, also that you soften them and comfort them with your grace and mercy and forgiveness for where they and we have all fallen. So that we take confidence in the renewing work of Christ and not our failures. Lord God, we love you. Amen.